So, Romain, welcome back. So, it, this is now perfect South French pronunciation of your first name, right? Yeah, uh, not South, but uh, North. Like, yeah, it's uh, let's say it's uh, generic French. Oh, generic so French, yeah. I, I try to yeah. sound, you know, accentless. So, just for you. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, I, I come from an area that doesn't really have an accent. So, yeah, it's, you see, it's this, I did some research and try not to adapt to your area right now with your, <laughs> <laughs> with your first name. So, we stopped the conversation at an interesting point. And uh, uh, there was a Bill Shannon. He, what I didn't knew, he created some some rules for group IDs and artifacts IDs. And you were right. the only one who just followed the rules or tried to understand the rules. And what you did is you rewrote the dependencies for Java 6 even back then to follow the rules and have a Maven build, which actually creates uh, clean APIs. Uh, right? This was the summary, what you did. Yeah, more or less. Um, these rules are called... Uh... Maven versioning rules. I think this document was even uh, refreshed when uh, it was donated to Eclipse. So there is a new version of that document that is somewhere, probably as a readme or a markdown file or some wiki page on Eclipse. If you can find it, send me. I will put it to, to show notes. If you, if you, this would be interesting, you know. Yeah, sure. The, so since I was tasked with kind of doing combined API compile time jar for Java E seven. I kind of had to go through this exercise of mavenizing in a in a clean way all this process, right? And that's when I figured out that basically um, things were not in a good state and these conventions that Bill wrote, basically nobody was following them. Mm -hmm. And even if people tried to follow them, like they were making mistakes because these rules were very uh, specific and not specifically like um, easy to implement, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you had to basically modify like a bunch of files and maintain the OSGI metadata and, and all these things. So I ended up creating like a Maven plugin and redoing uh, all the API jars that we had control over. So the API jars that we had control over were basically like all the most of the API jars, like I don't know EGB or transaction or JP. No JPA, it was like a separate team. But um, so we basically redid all these jars except the ones that were made by um, other companies, such as like CDI was yeah. is do done by Red Hat, so we had no control on that. Um, but in some cases, even though the jar files uh, were produced by other companies, I'm thinking of Batch. That was uh, contributed by IBM, right? And Spring. Uh, uh, yeah, but the engineer that was doing the the batch API was from IBM, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think was collaborating. The only the only API which uses Impl, right? Lots of Impls. All others look like Java E, but not the batch. Yeah, that's correct. It's actually uh, quite it, it looks somehow alien in the Jakarta e or Java e ecosystem. So if you if you take a look on the APIs how it's built, it it looks differently. Yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was uh, collaborating with that person to also make sure that this new API was kind of following the new kind of scheme and looked, you know, uh, similar to the others. What so scheme it looked, was it exactly? What do you have to follow, so roughly? You just remember? make sure that the conventions are all, like, to me, what matters the most is the group ID and the artifact ID. Okay. So that if you know the package name, you can almost predict the GAV that you're supposed to use. This is actually very important for developer experience, right? Exactly right, because this is, uh, in my opinion, what was a mess is like sometimes the API jar files were, their artifact ID was like the the, the short version of them, like JAXRS, for instance, mm -hmm. instead of javax.ws.rs, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, sometimes the the group ID was was not even like javax.packageName, it was something else like 
just Java X. Mm -hmm. So at yeah. the time of Java E6, when you look at all these separate API jars, if you had a project and you didn't want to depend on the aggregated compile time API jar for Java E6, and you wanted to depend on the individual API jar files, then your pum looked like a mess, like nothing was consistent, right? Yeah, and, and I never so I, actually got the idea in the first place why there were all the individual APIs. So I knew, you know, for the vendors, it's important to have the APIs. But for me, what only mattered was the top API. You know, what I only wanted to have in my palm is the Java 6 period, one dependency. This was the beauty of Java E for Maven projects because I only had a single dependency and nothing else. And what I saw sometimes other projects, they ignored the umbrella API and just included whatever they could. You know, they had servlets and, and common annotations. And I say, why are you doing this? Just to look smart or what? Is it too simple? Yeah. Just, yeah. And this is what I never got this like, yeah, because we would like to have modularized, you know, it's like what you are modularized. I mean, your server ships with everything anyway. So why, why you? Yeah. Yeah. In, in a Java environment where the app server provides all the implementation for this API, it's actually nice to have one compile time jar file dependency that you can have that reflects basically the programming model that the app server offers, right? So, so and even, even in the Helidon case, so you only add one single microprofile dependency. It's very similar experience to back then with Java E, which I really enjoy. And uh, Quarkus is different. So in Quarkus, I have to always think, you know, to add all these more dependencies, then I have, you know, the microprofile dependency with everything is small right but not rest easy which is not small right so i add everything from small right and one rest easy client dependency which reminds me you know the modularized pro projects back then right yeah the I, th I think the difference though is that with helidon you have to bring the runtime with the dependency whereas in in the case of java e like you don't package the runtime with your war file for instance right so that's the biggest difference yeah, of course. In Helidon, but, like transitively, we have to bring all the runtimes along with yeah, the compile time APIs. So it's yes, uh, yeah, yeah, you are right. Technically, but uh, actually, uh, it is still separated later because with Helidon and Quarkus, you have the uh, application is is the first jar which refers to all the libraries which sits somewhere else. So at the end, it's just right. separated again. So I, I would say yes, you bring all the dependencies with the API, but at the end of the day, they get separated somehow, and not the API from the implementation, rather than your business code from the, from the infrastructural right. code to have the layering, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but if you were to think of a use case where you are bundling third-party dependencies that your app server doesn't provide, in the old times when you were building a, jar, uh, a WAR file, you would actually put them in uh, webinf lib directory yes. within within the jar file, right? So you have the application class path and it's uh, like your own dependencies that are not app server dependencies, right? Yeah. And then you would have the app server class path itself. Yeah. Um, and this would actually translate with different class loaders and, you know, yeah. that's... Uh, but uh, with Helidon, when, when you build an app, we don't make that distinction between your own third parties and Helidon's kind of uh, class path. Yeah. You end up with one lead folder that has everything in it. One flat class loader. Exactly. This yeah. seems to be like a future. Quarkus does the same. They also have one flat class loader. Yeah. So we we had some uh, Slack, some questions like recently about that, and somebody was asking like, why didn't we go the route of uh, Spring Boot and this kind of smart Uber jars? Mm -hmm. And the the answer for that is actually very simple. It's uh, first why, of all, why why it, Uber jars are smart? This is what I don't get. No, because Spring Boot does some kind of crazy magic where it has a bootstrap logic that creates some kind of special class loader, and everything is kind of 
uh, a little bit complicated. It's that's why I'm saying smart Uber jar. It's not like a jar of jars, and it's like they they have some special sauce in there. I will have that's to look it up. I, I never heard smart jar Uber. No, jars. I'm making that term up. So it's just like I'm saying smart because they have some kind of special sauce on top of this. But if we if we if we cannot explain <laughs> what does smart jar is, is probably the reason why we I think don't it's do because it. their, their their bootstrap logic is a little bit complicated because uh, obviously doing a jar of jar is not simple, right? You have to uh, extract probably the jars inside the jar and then create ah, a special class loader and all this stuff. What like, I only yes. know, what we advertise at the beginning at Spring Boot, they are processing all the external dependencies to their own system jars. This is what, uh, what I remember at the beginning of Spring Boot, what happened. And this is yeah, probably, that's, yeah. This is, yeah. And they that, add everything to one huge jar. And and, and uh, at the beginning, they only you know supported specific dependencies. I don't know what the state now is. But um, I remember because at the beginning I got uh, lots of questions uh, regarding Spring Boot or so. I never did something with Spring Boot, but um, I, I said, okay, interesting question. And this is probably what 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 someone refers. But I would say um, in in a microservice environment, um, it is a, a flat class load is fine, and 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 whatever is smart is probably not that exciting. Yeah, so the, the simpler it gets, the, the better it is. I would say. So, exactly. So the the. For us, the main advantages of that approach is first, it's simple. It's regular Java class path. We're not reinventing the wheel. So we set the class paths in the manifest of the application jar. So we just have to have the lead folder sit next to your jar file. And it's just going to work. The second thing that's really good about this is that when you're using stuff like CDI, and or any other subsystem that requires like SPI files, right? If you do a, a fat jar or even an Uber jar, yeah, you, you, have to, stuff, right? you have to merge these files and you have yeah. to be really smart. Yeah. And in the case of CDI, sometimes like there is not even a workaround because CDI thinks of um so it's gonna discover beans based on the presence of the bean XML in a jar file, right? And so if you combine things that were supposed to be in separate jars into the same jar, you're gonna have side effects that are not supposed to be there, right? Yeah, and there are also so, li licensing licensing issues as well, right? Because sometimes it's not, yes. you're not even allowed to 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 you know to fiddle with the jars. But uh, now I understand what smart jar or whatever the term was, what was meant, what what is properly meant that uh, you deliver one super jar, uber jar, or fat jar, which contains all the other dependencies. But yes. uh, I mean, these times are over if you have Docker. I mean. Exactly. The, and the, so the, there the is main... no use case for that. I, I mean, the, the main reason why I really liked the application servers because accidentally they, they introduced uh, Docker layering. So the war, you know, was exactly. the uppermost yes. layer. And the, and I, I was really afraid that Helidon or, or, or Corcus will ship, you know, with the fat jars because I was saying uh, now game is over. What I can do, you know, there is no future because the application servers don't, don't shared, shared deployment is not is pointless nowadays and the yes. fed jars is uh, i mean it's only interesting for bare metal deployments and who does bare metal it is kind of came back in one point of time but right now there is no bare metal none of my clients uses bare metal right yes so but the, back, the, back the to main you we are already discussing the, the docker layering you're right yeah like, we are already discussing you know the features of helidon but what i wanted to know is you know you are in prague with java 6 you did you know from you follow bill shadon document about group ID, mm -hmm. group ID artifact ID, and you you managed to build 
the first time the Java 6 API. So you, I have to to to, to say thank you to you that uh, I could use Java 6 in my unit tests. Java 7. I we ah, never seven. came back and read. The, we never read, redid the Java 6 API to fix it. So we we only started with a clean slate uh, starting from E7. But I think the bill eliminated the tool in one point of time. So I can remember that the Java I, I was able to use the Java 6 dependencies in unit tests. Do, do I remember mm, correctly, or or was it Java I, 7? No, no, no. If you look at the if you look at the Java 6 uh, class files, the API jar file from Java 6. If you look at the class files, there is no implementation code in them. Okay, so then it was fixed in Java 7, and I thought yes. it was you know it was Bill, but it was you. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it was the team, but I was the engineer team. doing it. Yeah, no, yes. thank you for that. So I didn't knew that you know this this uh, um, because what I did with Java 6, do I uh, perform a lot of uh, code reviews, and back then I asked you know, the developers, I look at the pom and ask them you know. Uh, are you writing, you know, unit tests? Of course, with mocks. Yeah, yeah, we test everything. So how is this possible? Because there's only one dependency, Java 6, and you cannot actually load it, you know? So it was <laughs> impossible to use uh, Java 6 for unit tests. And back then, what we used, we used a replacement from JBoss. They 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 had their mm -hmm. own clean room APIs, which worked for unit tests. So this was my fallback, yes. which I really hated because I needed Java 6 for production and another dependency with scope test for for unit testing, and this was terrible. I really, I really hated, you know, bloated POMs. Yeah, and also in a sense, like um, an APR jar file is an implementation of the API. It's not an implementation of the spec, but it's by 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 the way the the Java uh, standard is set. Each vendor should have their own version of their the APIs, right? So we have this perception that an API jar file is universal. Mm -hmm. But it's actually not true. Each an API jar file is an implementation of the API. Yeah, the so problem were abstract that's... classes, right? So the Java exactly. six had uh, lots of abstract classes, and this were 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 uh, the tool removed the implementation, which broke actually the. the Java. Right. Yeah, and so this is also why I think JBoss historically has been shipping their own variant of the APIs. Yeah. Okay. Well, so in, I think in practice these APIs are interchangeable, but if you look at the rules, they're not supposed to like be, right? They're not uh um kind of universal. Mm -hmm. Which kind of bothers me because we were always using the Java X namespace and that makes people see these things as universal, but they are not, right? Yeah. And I had an um, I don't know, every Java one I, I went walked to Bill and try, you know, because back then there was a Sun I think Java 6 happened at some microsystems days. And what I remember, yes. the Java 1 was at the Moscone Center, and they were set up at the community, a community day kind of table spaces where you can join the engineers and have, you know, technical chat about stuff. So I always, you know, went to Bill and, and we had a chat about a unit testing or whatever. And, and, and then we had a you know, hitting discussion about exactly this. And Bill said to me exactly that. So the API jar is actually the implementation of the API and it contains abstract classes with some implementation. And we cannot just ship that because uh, usually this is the job of the vendor. So we can, you cannot take you know, the responsibility of that. And I always told Bill, you are correct, but I'm developer and this is crazy. So you cannot, this has to be right. a solution for that because it's not accepted. And, and yes. Bill was thinking at a um, um, math 
had math background and it was really hard to convince. So we had a really long discussions. And um, but uh, yeah, but uh, as he showed me already, or laughed. Okay, you are again, right? So okay. Yeah. Are you aware? The bill actually passed away. So are you aware of that? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely, yeah. But he was a uh, he yeah. was a really great guy, and he he achieved a lot. So I didn't knew that he actually wrote this spec for for uh, the. Um, the the group ID and artifact ID and which which is actually great because uh, what really bothers me is if it is not consistent, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Bill was a uh, long time uh, figure at Sun. He was uh, employee number eleven or number twelve at oh. Sun. Oh, he okay. was uh, he was a very big uh, prominent fi figure in the Sun engineering team. Okay, he was one of the architects of Solaris. That's what he's really like known for uh, at Sun. And then later on in his career, he moved on to kind of take ownership of uh, Java E. Yeah. But okay. he was he was one of the developers of Unix, basically. You could put it that way at okay. Sun. Uh, one he question to you. He with uh, Bill Joy also that was, you know, the BSD guy. Yeah, Bill Joy also, was also, uh, I, ne I don't think I met Bill Joy in person, but uh, he was also an interesting figure. Um, one question. Um, do you want it actually to work for Sun or you didn't care at that time? Um, I wasn't really aware of the reputation of Sun because okay. uh, I I mean, obviously I we, I never used Solaris before or I, I, I'm probably from that generation where we already had Linux and a bunch of tools. So apart from Java, I wasn't really aware of Sun. So I didn't really care. Because uh, what I remember, the last Java one, and uh, there were some some parties going on, and I joined the developers from Prague, actually. They were, I think, NetBeans and Glassfish developers. Mm -hmm. And they were really glad that they managed, you know, to see the last Java one. So for them, there was like, you know, almost religious experience. So they were absolute, you know, fangirls and fanboys. There were uh, also a couple of, of girls there. And uh, th they were really excited about Java one. I say, we are really glad that we are able to see the last Sun Java one. And they came from Prague. So I, this is what I remember. We went after the Birds of Feathers somewhere. And um, yeah, this is what I Yeah, that I makes sense. Yeah. That they were, uh, yeah. yeah, when you talk to former Sun employees, they all have very good memories of Sun Microsystem. Yeah. So to me, it doesn't surprise me that uh, they were behaving like that. Okay. So and, and you got, you know, the enlightenment afterwards, right? <laughs> so now... Yeah, yeah, speaking, I got yeah. all the stories. Yeah, okay. And, and But I, I joined, you know, obviously, since I made my internship right during the transition between Sun and Oracle, I joined uh, as an Oracle employee. Yeah, but you you, uh, you were surrounded by former Sun employees, I would say. Exactly. So since I've collaborated and worked with uh, within a group that was basically Sun uh, Microsystem, right? Uh, everybody thinks that I, think I've been working last year for so long. Everybody thinks that I was a Sun employee, but it's it's funny because I actually am not. So yeah, <laughs> I get this reputation of people see me as like, oh yeah, you are a Sun employee. But no, I I never was. Yeah, you are the Oracle Oracle native developer, right? Exactly. Yeah. Very good. So what you did after Java 7, after you fixed, you know, the libraries for me so that I, that I could just <laughs> finally, you know, <laughs> perform some unit tests against the Java 7 APIs. So what happened afterwards? Uh, let's see. So we shipped uh, Java 7. That was a big release for us. Mm -hmm. I think we shipped Glassfish 4 and Java 7 at the same time, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So I worked really hard on the release um, that year. Um, 
after that, we we were all kind of transitioned because after Java E7, there were times where we did not really work on Java E, if you remember. There was this quiet period of two years. Yeah, and I think now I know the reason. So you said, I didn't need enough time for, for Counter-Strike another year. So let's postpone, <laughs> postpone the Java E8 API release, you know. So uh, wait for me, I came back, right? Am I right? Because no one knew what happens at Oracle. So it's not released. I always had the assumption that the, Oracle, uh, the Java E8 developers take some vacations, you know. And, and this could be one explanation the guy who actually releases Java 8 now no, no, uh, needs some sabbatical you know, to play Counter-Strike. Am I right somehow? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but we we ended up working on WebLogic for uh, one and a half years. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a different code base. And since we were kind of... Um, it's the older code base in Glassfish. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is... Uh, Glassfish got rewritten between version two and version three, mm -hmm. and they adopted a, a lot of kind of very new technology that were almost like bleeding edge. Like they switched over to OSGI and adopted like a modular system, right? Yeah, and they very lean switched. one. So I like to know the the H H two K. I always H K two or H K two H K two. I always flip the 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 characters, but uh, it was uh, like annotation based and really lightweight. So it, it was. Revolutionary. What do I remember from Java 1? A t-shirt, a gla black glassfish t-shirt with uh, Java minus jar glassfish.jar. You remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this Alex is uh, uh, walking around with a t-shirt. It's like, what's, why Why I should do this? And now it's normal, right? So you, you can just uh, launch uh, it on exactly the same way. <laughs> 15 yeah, years and later. They also brought like concepts for like the glassfish embedded stuff was also very, uh, very fresh at the time, I yeah. think. Yeah. So... But it, what strikes you as a developer is uh, when when you have something that's modularized with Maven and uses like annotation model, it's like you can just open these projects in any you know modern IDE, right? Mm -hmm. There is no special build or special class path, like everything just works. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Glassfish before that, it was basically an ant build. Yeah. And with a kind of custom class loader, you know, everywhere. So working on a project like that with a modern ID is kind of a pain because you have to configure and set up everything. It's not going to work out of the box, right? Mm -hmm. And so WebLogic at the time before we worked on that was still kind of very much like Glassfish 2. So the developer experience was horrible because you had to run scripts to set up your class path and your ID would not recognize any class and you could not get auto-completion for anything without like spending two weeks on, you know, doing some voodoo magic on your ID just to make sure you could load the entire mm -hmm. workspace. And so we basically pushed the engineering team to kind of um, adopt a modern build system and they, they ended up up uh, using Gradle, okay. which, you know, uh, was very interesting because for me, uh, I mean, I we were asked if I wanted to work on Mavenizing WebLogic and I, I gracefully denied, denied <laughs> the request. But um, the, the interesting part about this, like on such a big project, how you tackle this problem and you basically... Uh, use a build system to kind of provide everybody the, the goodness of, okay, now you can load any module and so on and, and all the small details. I think that was very interesting because it's, we had basically a project that you had to almost work with VI on it, right? To be honest. Yeah. And then now you could actually use any modern ID that understood Gradle and so started after like two, two, two works, two years of modernization, finally you could use Emacs then, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so, just, just just kidding. So you you spent the time on WebLogic and uh, and and you 
one half yeah, years. Yeah, and so we it's... implemented a bunch of features that were basically cloud-related because there was a push to uh, kind of vertical scaling and then city at the time. So they wanted to kind of make WebLogic multi-tenant. Okay. And so the, the former kind of Glassfish team, I mean, our group worked on that uh, uh, WebLogic multi-tenant feature. It didn't really take off, but I think for me, that was a great experience because I got to work on a big project that I really have like any knowledge of and had to navigate and make very uh, tactical code changes in, you know, code that was working for 15 years. And suddenly you have to butcher the class and, you know, add all your stuff. Right. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And as, in, as an engineer to work on such a, a legacy system and, and modernize um, or implementing modern features to it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that I, I really enjoyed that part. Was it still in Prague? No, 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 no. So I, I moved, uh, I stayed in Prague four years and I moved to the US uh, in 2015. Okay. So, uh, but Prague is a really nice city, right? You enjoyed your stay in Prague? It is. Yes, yes. I would recommend Prague to anybody. Yeah. I really it's, like uh, Prague. So I was in, several times in Prague and I always really enjoyed it. So, you know, the old town is yes. really, really nice. Yeah. And the Czech people are very, very nice too. So I would yeah. recommend anybody like to do the same thing as I did. Um, apply for a position in Oracle, you know, at Oracle in Prague. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to Prague first. Not don't even try to go to US, right? So and then. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. And and how how uh, was you you okay? So you moved from Prague to US. How, how was your experience with the US? US. Do you regret you know to leaving Prague and going to Bay Area or what? What was your experience? <laughs> So the, the main problem for me in Prague is I did not speak Czech. And at some oh. point, if you want to kind of spend more than a couple of years, you have, I mean, it's better if you want to stay there, you know, for a long time to learn the local language, right? And I, I tried, but I did not really uh, succeed because, I mean, yeah, I had to speak English every day and I was probably focused on that. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted first to move to the U.S. basically to really just not have the language barrier. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the problems you have when you are in a foreign country and, and you have to speak English to interact with others and English is not their, their main language is whenever you are in a discussion, people have to change their, like the language they use just so that you can understand. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what I mean? if you want to be included in the discussion, discussions in the room, they have to speak English just so that you could chime in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if you're not there, if you're, if they're like, if they're speaking in Czech among themselves and you're sitting there, you will never understand and you could never participate. Yeah. So it takes an effort from both sides. And at the end of the day, like I, the people were really nice, but it, it, at some point I got kind of depressed that, um, I had to force the entire room to speak English just because I was okay. there. But could you could you understand something in Czech or no way? Yes, obviously I was able to navigate around and I, okay. I, I, I could do my uh, daily life. But Czech is a language that uh, is spoken quite fast when spoken fluently. And uh, it's very, very different from French. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's probably closer to German in the way it functions where uh, there is no articles or pronouns, but the, the words are shaped at the end, so it changes based on the context, right? Okay. And that makes it for me harder to kind of recognize things when put in a sentence. So what do you say word French is more similar to English than to Czech? In and... that sense, because when when you when you say a word in French, uh, that word doesn't really change whether it's singular or oh, okay. Um, the then is similar. Then is Czech similar to German? Yes. Yes, yes, in that sense, yes. There is declinations. And I, I found that uh, it makes the language uh, a little bit harder to grasp uh, when, when you hear people talking. Okay. 
What I learned um, uh, in Czech, uh, because for unknown reasons, I was invited once to Oracle conference in Prague for a keynote, I think even. And I was at the airport uh, in Prague and there was a huge uh, mascot. And this was a an mower. Um, no, how it's called. Yeah. And uh, it was called in Czech Kritek. Oh, Kritek, yes. It's, yes. Um, it's a mower. Well, Mo, exactly, Mo. Mo. Yes, yes. And 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 I said, okay. Then I learned, you know, this critic and drilling. I forgot drilling. So, uh, but I look it up, and the entire keynote I was about critic and drilling. But I mess up some wording, and it was lots of fun. So people still remember the keynote where I try, you know, to explain how critic yeah. works with microservices. So this and this was lots of fun, and and yeah, this is what 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 I remember. Good choice. If you want to get Czech people interested. Uh, yeah, that's a very good choice because Karatek is a it's a cartoon character from the fifties and it's really popular over there. But this was so, there's a huge critic at the airport. You saw them? There's an entire shop of the critics, so you cannot miss. Yeah, the yeah. Actually, I, I used to buy them for as Christmas gifts to bring back for my family. So I, okay, yeah. critic. And then I learned in in Prague there is also the uh, the mouse. It's called Misk, Miska or something, and then they mm -hmm. are just 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 couples or something like this. And yes. uh, I, I explained and the story at the keynote, and it was lots of fun. Okay, yes, now now you are back to so. What is your impression of uh, you? You're probably in the near of uh, San Francisco. Um, what is your impression of moving from 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 Prague to US? So you like that? Oh, it's very it, yeah, yeah. I, I I like that. The the life here is very different. So first of all, it's like the weather. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the weather is basically the the main uh, advantage that you could think okay. of. The, there's never any clouds and the sky is always blue and the temperature is warm most of the year. There's basically two seasons. There is summer and then there is spring. But this is exactly like my desktop. It's no different. So if I look you know, on my desk background, I see a mountain with blue sky. So it is exactly the same climate yeah. as my room. Exactly. Well, I mean, the, the this picture, I, um, you probably have a Mac, right? So yeah. Cupertino is very close to where I live. So it, okay. it's, it's exactly like that, yeah. Uh, but that's that's. I mean, I, I wear short. I wear shorts like maybe ten months out of twelve. Okay. And um, so that to me is the best benefit of living in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of downsides. Like there's a lot of people here. So you, depending on where you live, you will have a lot of traffic. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of sad. Uh, also, housing is insanely expensive. Still, I think it's getting cheaper, right? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. If you want to buy a house, uh, even a small one, you have to count in millions. Okay. So, and for for a person to kind of try to establish life over there and build a family and and you know uh, buy a real estate, you have to get uh, a lot of money. Okay. So I, even outside, outside of the cities. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now uh, you'd have to get like up to I don't know a three-hour commute to get something really cheap. Okay. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. it's, you have to go really far south to get something cheaper than, okay. um, yeah. So, and, and the, the, the Silicon Valley today is much bigger than it was, right? So you could think of almost like Redwood Shore, which is like very close to the airport, mm -hmm. all the way down to like South San Jose. So, so Redwood Shores is where Oracle is, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. San Mateo, Redwood Shores. And you're uh, working in these Redwood Shores right now? No, no, no. I work in the former HQ of uh, Sun Microsystem. It's in Santa Clara. Oh, nice. But I thought this is Facebook. Oh, no, you're thinking of the, the previous Sun headquarter in, okay. um, uh, what's, what's the name of it? 
Yeah, so that headquarters was built in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. I think 2004 or something, and then they moved their headquarters over there. And what Facebook bought, it's the previous campus uh, before that. Okay. Uh, with the famous picture of like the logo of Sun, you know, yeah, that exactly. they turned around and yeah, I know that. Exactly. Uh, we still have a couple of um, relics here. Like there's a fountain with like a old Sun logo on it. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. But the campus is really nice. Uh, I don't get to enjoy it these days because of, of, of the COVID, but uh, the campus is really nice. Okay. Uh, regarding, you know, shorts, and my first Java one is the year 2000. So, and um, and I said, okay, this is California. It's warm. And this was in San Francisco, of course. It was, mm-hmm. it was never that cold. It was in, I think, what was the first? In April. Around April was the first Java ones. I think always in, in spring. And it was crazy cold. So what I bought, I bought jacket, everything I bought, you know, in San Francisco because way too cold. It was colder than in Germany, actually. <laughs> but San Francisco right. is unique, you know. If you go outside San Francisco, yes. it's warmer. But what what I couldn't believe, everyone said to me, that's okay, you are stupid, you know. They're like 10 kilometers difference is nothing. So I would say oh, it's, it's, it's a huge difference, oh, right? <laughs> there is a huge difference. Yeah. Like there is a microclimate around yeah, yeah. Uh, San Francisco. Which is unbelievable. And- yeah, if you yeah, go and you, across the you bridge, you have to be careful warmer. when you get inside the hotels because you could always catch a cold. Yeah, because it's actually going to be like um, colder sometimes inside and outside, and because of this microclimate, and sometimes you have to get outside and you have to put your your jackets on and so on. Like you don't realize that when when you go inside the hotels, especially when you go to Java one, right? Yeah. That's how people were catching colds back then because the the way they manage temperatures inside the hotels and the fact that the, the, the weather is so weird outside, then you end up basically just catching a cold. Yeah. I remember the first time I got to, we went to Java one with the Prague team, like half of the people that went, like that came with us just got a cold. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so, you're very right. Like whenever I go to San Francisco, I'm just taking a jacket or something in case it rains because yeah. the weather is not as predictable. So not so the, this is the time where you have you know you you cannot use the shorts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though right now like the weather is pretty nice for that time of the year, so nice. So what happened after your web logic fix? So you improved the situation a bit and then get bored with web logic or what happened then? Um, so we we were working on that for probably a year and a half mm-hmm. and um. At that time, there were a lot of political moves at Oracle, so we we got shifted around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, what happened after that is there was a push for basically for open sourcing uh, or putting Glassfish and Java e on GitHub. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's the next uh, the next step. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 problem that uh, we had was that uh, Java.net, the former uh, Kinai-based mm-hmm. uh, platform, mm-hmm. was being shut down. Mm-hmm. And Java.net was entirely run by Oracle uh, inside, you know, uh, in-house, right? Mm-hmm. So they basically, you know, were going to pull the plug and we had to kind of migrate and figure out how we were going to migrate all our stuff onto uh, GitHub. Which was, which so, is still a pity. So what I never understood, you know, the Java.net, they, actually there was nice name and this was nice community actually. So I don't think it was necessary to shut it entirely down, right? Just my personal opinion. I mean, because uh, uh, it, it was a brand, it looked nice. Yeah, the, the, I think the problem is it didn't really age well and the operating cost was uh, probably not worth it for the executive at all. Oh, okay. That's the only reason I can think of. Okay. And if you compare that to GitHub, GitHub is basically like uh, more, you know, 
open. It's not like Java. Oh, it's everything. I, I don't mean, uh, you know, the repositories. I meant Java.net had, you know, the news part and community part, just that. So, oh, I see. So this is what I meant. Not, not uh, of course, I would never, you know, run my own uh, SCM, but they could leave, you know, just the community part, like uh, the portal to Java news or whatever. And then, of course, yeah, I don't moving... know what happened to that. Yeah, the, the, this, was, I... this was transitioned to Oracle Developer or something. So the Oracle, the Oracle Code or Oracle Developer program, which um, I ask myself because Java has a brand. So this is like you know, is I would say, Java as a name is a stronger brand than Oracle Developer Program or something like this. But uh, yes. yeah, th th this is what was a pity. Also that they renamed uh, Java 1 to Code 1. Now it doesn't matter, but I say, okay, Java 1 was unique and the Code 1 is just generic name. And I, if I were Oracle, I would introduce, you know, Code 1s, JavaScript 1, whatever they have, R1 and, and whatever. And, 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 and everything could be under the umbrella of the code one or something like this, but it's too late. But this is what I didn't got because they already bought Java, so I would just use the brand a little bit more. Yeah, I yeah. I cannot yeah. agree more. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you lost Kenai. On Kenai was also nice. Nice name, nice logo, and they use Mercurial, you know, to do the stuff. Also understandable that uh, I mean GitHub or it's or or whatever is uh, of right. course you have to use it. But uh, Kenai was uh, actually also nice idea, but it was not well maintained. I would say at Sun Microsystems. Yeah, it did not age very well. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And especially after the acquisition, I don't think there were many people uh, behind the project, so that's yeah. probably the reason for that. Yeah. Um, so we we had to work our way basically in transitioning um, the Glassfish subprojects and Glassfish itself, along with all the Java stuff, onto GitHub, right? So not just the source code management, but everything in terms of like, okay, we we're using Jira, mm -hmm. and we have to transition out of Jira into something else. So how mm -hmm. are we going to migrate all this content that we have in the issues? or uh, even the websites, right? There was a lot of, like, on, on, on Kinai, uh, you had like, you could choose between Git subversion or Mercurial, so you had the source code management. You had Jira, and then you had also like a, a web dev uh, endpoint you could use to kind of upload files and, and access these things through HTTP. So in other words, projects were basically um, having their, their downloads hosted by Kinai. Mm -hmm. Right, and so we had to figure out um, an equivalent solutions for all these things, and that was quite a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So, I during that period, obviously, since I, I'm very knowledgeable in this in this space, I was providing a lot of insights for our management to make decisions because we they had to basically make a proposal to the executives at Oracle and come up with a plan. Here's okay. what we're going to do, and obviously. It, like today you could think of GitHub is the one and only choice for being an open source project, right? But even this kind of question was debatable at the time and, and uh, which kind of made me mad, but they were kind of uh, thinking, you know, should we choose between like Bitbucket or GitHub? And I mean, for me, the question was just not even something that you should ask is if you want to be visible as an open source project today, you yeah. have to be on GitHub. Yeah. Um, but but what, what, what I'm really asking myself today about GitHub is, I mean, will be something else or is GitHub the golden standard because it, it, it belongs to Microsoft? And the question is, if it, you know, if a manager at Microsoft decides the same, that uh, GitHub becomes a little bit too, too, you know, too expensive and they will try, you know, to introduce something which community doesn't like, 
what can happen is in shortest amount of time, GitHub might be not become the the next big things, but, but people can move around to something else like Bitbucket probably not, but uh, GitHub dot dot next, right? So this this could actually happen. Yeah, but I I would say we're probably at the point where it's too big to fail almost. Okay. Right. Yeah, this can be. Uh, yeah. Um. Also, with Git, the beauty of Git is you can migrate in. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, this a very is short amount of but, time. But, but GitHub, I wonder myself, it can really happen that if Microsoft, you know, but I, I, I see the opposite what happens right now, which is interesting because I was the uh, GitHub, I paid the GitHub Pro license and now it's mm -hmm. no more necessary. I get the same feature for free. So it's actually the opposite happens, but it could really happen that because of um, uh, Microsoft is behind GitHub, so one manager says, okay, now you you restrict the amount of pulls or whatever, what, what Docker did with the with the registry, and um, and this could, you know, make some people angry, and, and this could lead to, uh, to another um, solution, but you are right. This could happen now. Back then, GitHub was the thing, I would say. Mm -hmm. then, now it's, I think, is more questionable than back then, right? Because now you have Bitbucket, which is viable, you have yes. GitLab, GitLab, back then there was only GitHub. And doing something right. with Mercurial wouldn't fly, I would say. Yes, yeah. yes, I agree. There are there are viable alternatives now. So if, if Microsoft were ever to kind of mess this up, then yeah. we would be able to migrate. And I'm sure the community would set up like migration scripts or tools all around yeah. the place. So you don't even have to bother to write your own migration tools. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about migration tools, this is basically what we had to do. We had okay. to transition like... Uh, Jira into like GitHub issue trackers, or uh, for me the most interesting part was, and that was very important to me. It's um, our source code management had a ton of history that I think is very valuable for people because what's nice about GitHub is GitHub can reflect all your contribution you've ever made on GitHub projects, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter that the contribution you've made were made at the time where the project was on GitHub. Mm -hmm. It just gets the data out of the commits. So if you're uploading a new Git repository that's like 15 years old, you're going to get credits for the commits you've made 15, like 15 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, what was really, really important is that I was converting the repositories and uh, maintaining all this nice history so that people could have credits on GitHub for the work that they did on Glassfish at the time. Yeah, you, you're and, saying this is that nicely, but actually what you wanted to see, you know, your contribution to Java 7 APIs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my selfish, um, yeah, selfish as I guess, evil I, self. Yeah, so there's a, like you know, there's the only commits which are bold or specific font, you know, like uh, yes, <laughs> the, the star next to it. Star yes, exactly, exactly. Did. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so, and this is also interesting piece of history, you know, because uh, sometimes yes. you can remember if you are really you know open source hacking and say what I did you know Christmas five years ago, and you see oh there was this my contribution. This is a nice feeling actually. Right. And so um so what I what I did is I I I figured out like what's the best migration tool for SVN to git and the answer was not so simple because um you have SVN to git or S no git SVN rather exactly and git SVN doesn't work very well. It's uh rather straightforward and it doesn't really uh produce a nice history when you have a bunch of merge and when you have a, a complex layout within the repository. So also in Glassfish, they migrated out of CVS to SVN the first time. Mm -hmm. So there was like basically imported history into SVN and then there was history that was made on SVN itself. Mm -hmm. And the way they did that basically, um, there was like a, a clear transition and then the 
Git SVN, the tool itself would bug and it would not be able to kind of uh, convert that part of the history. So in other words, the history would stop at Glassfish 3 when they migrated out onto SVN. But all the history before that for Glassfish 2 that was based on CVS would be missed, right? Mm -hmm. So I, and, and the fact that the Glassfish subversion repository was split and there was multiple projects hosted on it. For instance, at the top, we had like a, a API directory where we had multiple uh, API projects for EGB, mm -hmm. for transactions and so on. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to be able to create small Git repositories for each of these uh, smaller directories and only have the history that relates to these directories, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up finding a tool that was written by the KDE team, the Linux desktop. Wow. Uh -huh. And they wrote a tool because they also migrated themselves out of like, let's say a mono repo in subversion into multiple repos in Git. Mm -hmm. And so they wrote this tool in C++, which is uh, like, to my knowledge, this is the best tool available. It's called SVN to Git. Okay. And so I, I basically, and the problem is that this tool can get a little bit complicated when you use it. So you have to really get familiar with it. You have to work on a bunch of regular expression and you have to know your history so that you can exclude certain commits and you know certain things. You are fluid with I regular did, expressions? More or less, yes. Okay, because I always forget them. So it, it, it is really, I don't know, I learned them, I think, five times, and I don't do nothing with them. I always forget them. And uh, the last time I was pretty good, but now nothing. I would say I, it is like one of the technologies <laughs> which <laughs> is really hard to learn for me. It's like, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you just need like uh, 40 minutes in Google and you can figure it out. Yeah, yeah, so. again, but I always forget <laughs> it. So usually, you know, I remember what I did, but uh, it's like regex is like, you know, after after two weeks, I completely forget what to yeah do. for me it's the complex use case when you have to do like the negative look ahead and all these things like mm -hmm. i i i don't remember these but doing like simple like grouping and pattern matching uh that's straightforward yeah um okay okay so what i did is i basically i, I set up all the glassfish repositories that were based on this version and i i basically made the infrastructure that we needed to kind of create really nice Git repositories that preserve the history for all the people. And then I went into some kind of archaeological journey where I tried to map every username to an email. Okay. Because in Subversion, your username is not your email. And sometimes your username was just made of a bunch of numbers and we don't know who that person was. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I asked around all the employees that were still there and tried to find, uh, do you know who that person is, right? And so I made like a... Uh, a directory, basically a mapping of uh, Dictionary, user right? IDs to exactly to to uh, to email addresses, so that uh, people could actually register these email addresses on their GitHub account mm -hmm. and have basically their commits linked to their account. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I think we did a really good job. If you go on the on the Glassfish repository and all the repositories that are in the Java organization, you will see basically uh, most of the history being preserved. So, so what I will try after the show is try to very first Glassfish commit and see who performed the very first initial Glassfish commit. Would be interesting. Uh, I don't think the history goes up to the very first Glassfish commit. I think what Why you might you be able to see. Oh. Be because at that time it was imported from scratch into CVS. So you're going to see like probably an automated um, drop-in from okay. CVS. But it will be probably Glassfish 2, right? Yes, yes. Oh, no, it's even before that. It's uh, Sun, Java, App Server, SGS 1. Okay. Before even Glassfish. Yeah, but... Yeah, so okay. mm -hmm. yeah, before it was be... open source, so... Yeah. Uh, it's, it's from the, the, the very first App Server, like I think the... 
Java E4 SDK or something like this? Yeah, this, the, the first one I had to use at the Sun Microsystems courses, it was the uh it was a commercial version and this was like and then was like educational version the um mm -hmm. um java j2e j2e deployment kit or something like this where it was deployment tool and the server and uh, there was a commercial and then they open source everything and made the glassfish one but right. regardless it would be interesting to see how far it goes back right yes and so i'm, I'm kind of really happy about this because i was able to kind of and Even you were the, the only that... guy who worked on the on the transition with the scripts and the regular expression. So I um, no, so I I made all the groundwork, and mm -hmm. then once I basically explained to everybody how uh, what tool we were going to use, then we we scaled up the work because there was a lot of repositories that we had to take care of, mm -hmm. and then uh, so I did Glassfish and most of the Glassfish sub projects, but then we uh, we scaled out to all the because there there were many repositories to all the other repositories with other engineers. Uh, uh, from I think they were from India, working at Oracle India. Okay, but but you were so, the, the the one for Glassfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah nice. I was the the main consultant behind this project, you could say. Yeah, cool. Um, nice. I did not take care of the migration of the issues, though. That's uh, I didn't do that. So yeah, but in Glassfish, that... there were not a lot of issues. It was a flawless server, oh. basically. Yeah, the two issues you could you know migrate you know just by copying the uh, two lines of, of yes. things manually. Okay, <laughs> nice. But um, the, the sad part about the migration to E4J is that uh, I don't know if it's because of Oracle or if it's because of Eclipse, but we had to do a, a drop in without history on all the new repositories. Oh. So there is a discontinuation of the Git history between Java is Glassfish mm -hmm. and Jakarta is Glassfish. That's sad. That is, to me, given all the efforts that I spent, you know, doing that, it's it's a little bit sad, yes. And it's a piece of internet history, basically. So I mean, well, and also for the engineers, sometimes, like, if you look at a piece of code, you don't know why a certain, like, you cannot blame a file that is like ten years old. Yeah. That's, I think, that's a problem. But yeah, we're not going to remove all the repositories; they're archived, so they could still go on the other repository and blame the file over there, right? Yeah, exactly. Um. Okay. So after everything was migrated, what you did then? Uh, after that, uh, we worked on a project that was called uh, Java for Cloud, uh -huh. which is the ancestor of Helidon. Okay. And how you go to the uh, project? I mean, this was like natural to go through migration to GitHub to switch to Java to Cloud? or It's basically the push to microservices and I think the pressure created by Spring Boot. Okay. So our management... I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I mean, this is my personal opinion, but I think our personal management was trying to come up with an answer to Spring Boot internally. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it was created. There were multiple attempts on things that were based on Jersey and you know different experiments, but we ended up having a, a POC um, from another project and then it became uh, named Java for Cloud internally as a, as a code name. Mm -hmm. And we released that as Helidon because we cannot use Java in the name. Because mm -hmm. it's a registered trademark, trademark. Um, so yeah, so then we started working on Helidon and basically uh, open sourcing um, what was back then uh, Java for Cloud. What's interesting is uh, there are still you know projects Glassfish, uh, Glassfish no more, most Payara. So Glassfish to Payara, which Glassfish project would migrate to Payara or to Whitefly, which are perfectly happy with everything actually. So with memory consumption, with startup time, with whatever, which are reasonable projects. So I would say what would also work back then is, you know, to make Glassfish even more popular 
but this was not the strategy. This was never got because um, you could just demodularize de Glassfish a little bit. This is what I would do, you know, just to skip a little bit of the OSGI because no more needed and get rid of the shared deployments. And then you could also get, you know, a cloud ready runtime, right? Uh, I, I cannot agree more, <laughs> but uh, the, from the perspective of our management, that probably wasn't an option. So yeah. we. And I was asked actually from. Oracle, so they, 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 there was a management call and I just joined for free. They just asked about my opinion about, you know, what's next. And I say, uh, they, they always mentioned web logic. And I say, yeah, but we have Glassfish. You know, web logic is probably too big. But if you if you just, you know, tune Glassfish, I mean, this is hyper competitive. And you have already in place all, you know, nice APIs. And we had to wait 10 years and we got something again. So I would say... Halidon or Quarkus are very similar to it. If you look at Quarkus right now, it is just you no know, reversed whitefly. It's not like they implemented everything from scratch. They use their own proven technologies and have Quarkus and and Halidon at the same time. You also not not implementing probably everything from scratch, but you can also use you know, already existing existing stuff. And and this yeah, is you, why you could say that we 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 rewrote something that already existed. It's just in a different fashion, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's more or less the same. And um, and, and this is why and 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 what's funny now because um, so I I had no opportunity ne never opportunity to you know to use um, Spring Boot uh, from scratch. Where I tried you know to have some firefighting in project which Spring Boot was involved, but innocent. So the, the developers were the problem, not Spring Boot. But um, I helped in some Spring Boot projects, but it, it, they were okay. But uh, what I heard a lot, I spent a lot of time with uh, Glassfish, as you probably know, and, and Payara, Whitefly, Jakarta E, and Java e Space. And I always heard, you know, Spring Spring and Spring Boot is lightweight. And uh, and nowadays, so this year and last year, I heard uh, people are moving, or I hear, you know, we don't, it doesn't have to be as small as Helidon or Quarkus, which, which means that it, it Spring Boot became the next problem, probably. So what I hear a lot, that it is actually, uh, it consumes... Uh, a lot of memory, and it boots slowly, which is, I don't know how, how it's possible because it was always claimed to be a lightweight. What I think what happened is is that the developer just you know, add dependencies, um, too many dependencies, and then becomes slow. But what, what's what's funny observation I have is that the arguments just you know, changed. So at the beginning, Spring Boot was meant to be the lightweight alternative, and now it becomes, you know, the 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 the, the monolith, the enterprise ship. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. What, what is crazy to me. It's exactly like you know, um, if I remember my early Java days, I always was told Java is slow. We have to use C or C plus plus because Java is a third language, and and so I hear it a lot. And then you know, the discussion switched. So like, uh, Java is so so fast. We don't need the speed. Therefore, you can use you no know, Scala to have better developer experience or Groovy or whatever was that day because uh, it is slower. Yeah, it is slower, but no one cares about the performance. So and now we have the same argumentation. Now they say, okay, Spring Boot is consumes memory and it uh, and it uh, starts slower, but no one cares because no one needs you know the memory consumption. In my project, I heard you know five years we have to be uh, startups is important, memory is important, and now nothing is important anymore or or is important. This is like you no know, strange argumentation. Yeah, I I do think that the the startup time is doesn't matter as much, and it's only a matter of perception by the people when they yeah. they create a new project is, and I think that's the problem that Java had. Like you you're writing a small Java program and then you started it, and obviously when the JVM starts, it's slow. It's not where the JVM shines, right? We know the JVM is fast, 
after a couple of minutes when it's warmed up. And if you compare that with the C programming, obviously, like the difference is clear, right? And so I, to some degree, I think the hype of GraalVM is also somehow related. Because you get the same feeling when you have a GraalVM native image program. You start it, it's blazing fast, right? And so I... I don't think it's that much of a problem if an application, like a web application, is a little bit slow to start, as long as it performs well once it's it's warmed up, right? Yeah, no, it performs well. No one cares because no no one measures this really. So I spend lots of time with larger projects, and they writing unit tests like crazy, but uh, stress tests or, or or load tests, no one has time for that because they spend yeah all as the long time. as it's not visibly slow no one yeah, cares yeah. right yes and and web logic back to web logic it it was almost the same experience i was a huge web logic fan actually and i use web logic a lot until version 8 what i remember and okay and web logic 8 was blazing fast so i i forgot the numbers but it's booted and started in a few seconds and it came actually with weblogic.jar it was like 30 megs was everything there and I also remember there was a like WebLogic client jar, but the point was it was very fast. And then they, you know, they 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 added more and more enterprise features, and then it becomes uh, really slow. So I just lost interest in in WebLogic then. But uh, until mm -hmm. eight, just what I remember was was a, a great experience. And um, I, I I I had a back then it was it was very similar situation to to now. So everyone said okay, enterprise Java, but WebLogic was blazing fast, was lightweight, easy to install, everything was nice. And um, Glassfish was the same. And even, you know, you, you, uh, you said Glassfish v2 and Glassfish v3. Glassfish v3 uh, introduced the modularization, which I say, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? Because it costs a lot of time. And actually, I always run my entire Glassfish. I don't even see the point, you know, just to start half of the modules. I mean, who cares about that? So I, I, I always use my all, 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 the entire Glassfish. And what I remember is also, some of my clients wanted to deactivate the EGB containers and in Glassfish, you could actually see the bundle size and it was like mm -hmm. 700 kilobytes. So it's not like a huge, huge bundle. It was a tiny. And and therefore it's not this interesting how the how the industry moves you now back and forth between modularization and demodularization. Well, I think it had some impact on the memory footprint because in Glassfish, they were only class loading the modules that were wired uh, at runtime. Yeah. So like HP2 a... has this kind of integration where they were starting the bundles uh, lazily. Yeah. So unless you're using a feature, uh, a bundle is from that bundle, that bundle is not going to be started and therefore is not going to be loaded in the class loaders. Yeah, but usually I needed my project lots of features and what really annoyed me and Glassfish V3, what I remember is I, I, I think even I opened an issue it's because it's Glassfish V2, the admin console started immediately. And with three, I had to wait until the bundle activates. So this was annoying for me because yes. I, at the beginning, I always wanted to have the admin console because this is what I worked with, right? Yeah, and the admin console is deployed also lazily. So you had yeah. to basically wait twice. You had to sniffer wait for the auto-deploy. Sniffer, right? In Glassfish, there yes. were sniffers who try you know, to, to find what you are using and then loaded lazily the bundles. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's from the deployment code. Yeah. Okay. So you worked you worked on Java for Cloud. Was it fun? Yeah, yeah. So the the origins of Java for Cloud, um, it's because um, Java I forgot which version, but uh, version seven or eight introduced uh, lambdas, mm -hmm. and now there was this whole kind of hype train around um, functional programming in Java, mm -hmm. and uh, and also at the same time, uh, Reactive was a big 
kind of keyword. It was only, you know, like we were hearing about actors and all the stuff that they were doing in Scala and then people were doing that in Java. And then that's basically was the, where the hype was. So the, the true roots of Helidon were let's make a Java web framework that is basically embracing the functional programming language mm-hmm. and something more or less based on Express.js. I'm not sure if you know that yeah. JavaScript framework mm-hmm. where you express your routes and then you just implement your endpoints almost like in line with Lambdas mm-hmm. and, and also kind of where everything is asynchronous. So that's basically the roots of Java for Cloud. It was, let's implement another web framework that is functional first and reactive first. Mm -hmm. And let's see where that goes, right? So that experiment took off and then eventually became what's now the Helidon web server. Or SE, right? For SE, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's where the project started. Um, And then when, when we were building things around that, like we added config and a bunch of other features, but at first the experiment started with web server, Mm -hmm. web server and config were the first two modules, I think. And And then like uh, security. I I think I saw it the first time in Java one. And I think it was even before public release. So Dimitri told me that back then, I think it was like, you know, preview or something like this. Yeah. Um, I think it's controversial because uh, reactive streams itself is controversial among Java people. Yeah. Because the the programming model is is changing things and you cannot debug much and everything is obscure. Yeah. Um, it's like the whole async discussion can be very heated internally, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think it had some success with a certain crowd and it didn't really ring a bell with the other crowd. I think the the more traditional Java E crowd does not really like this stuff because it's plain Java and it doesn't have any annotations. And it means you're writing your own boilerplate, right? Yeah. And I ask so, you always why I should do this, right? Because if I can write less code with a few annotations and this is good enough, then I'm completely not interested in any reactive stuff. So this is my personal right. opinion, right? And then Right. I, I mean, I respect that opinion, but that the other side of the house is the people that don't want to know what's happening inside these obscure containers and annotations and want to be able to debug things all the way down just from their IDs. And so an API such as the web server, you know, gives you that uh, capability, right? So it's simple. It's something you can understand and it's... Um, it's uh, very similar to other frameworks that people might be familiar with. And so that's because we had this kind of conflicts internally among you know, people's views on what we should do. Then eventually when we started supporting MicroProfile and we you know, uh, wanted to brand Helidon, we were struggling. What is the programming model of Helidon and so on? And that's where we can, came to the conclusion that we want to support both models. Yeah. Because there are people that are like more like Java style. They want their annotations. They want CDI. They want to program using this powerful uh, annotation-based programming model, right? And then there is the other house, which is like, no, I need to control and I need to 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 have the sense or the perception that I can understand what you know what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be able to debug and put a breakpoint all all the way down. And so uh, we that's when we basically decided to go with the SE and MP uh, branding. Mm-hmm. So MicroProfile was added like later on. Uh, Right before we, we open source Helidon, uh, it basically was the, the, the big thing that uh, we did when we did Helidon. We said, okay, it's J4C, but we need to add micro profile, and then uh, it's going to be Helidon SC and MP. Yeah, and this was, I think, a 
very good move because uh, at least for me it would be uh, not even mildly I wouldn't be not interested at all you know just to learning another reactive Java SE API but with micro profile it makes sense because uh, I can still you know I mean debugging I, the question is no I used uh, Jakarta and and uh, Java for for a long time and uh, in only in very few cases I had actually to debug the entire application server. Usually it's very obvious what happened, so it is simple, simple enough. And the reactive stuff still pays off if you do reactive messaging or you're dealing with Kafka. This is where reactive programming shines because it's natural. Right. But, but yes. you know, using reactive for everything, I just don't get it. So for me, it is like, you know, uh, buying a, a race car and go to shopping. I mean, uh, to a shop shopping mall. For me, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, it's okay, we can do this, but why? And I always right. ask the question why. I never got an answer because it's funky or whatever. And so what 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 means? I'm in general absolutely not interested in learning proprietary APIs because they come and go. You know, but microprofile mm -hmm. will remain because there are multiple implementations. This is the appealing part. You know. Right. Even though in practice, I'm pretty sure you tie yourselves up to your vendor without really realizing it. Right. So some small details here and there that, like, as the project's growing, is going to make the migration to a different vendor uh, challenging. Right. Well, yeah. But uh, what we did, for instance, we we migrated from uh, all the Java E servers to MicroProfile, and we spent a surprising uh, uh, short time to do this. So my clients were actually delighted that it worked that well. And it's only worked because we had the APIs. They were probably very diligent in not using too many vendor-specific features. If uh, you know me, server. we always just use the API. So everything right. else, yeah, yeah. The, I call it thin wars. And, and this, I, I would say it always paid off in, in larger projects because if you are, if you are relying on vendor-specific features and third-party APIs, you will have maintained them, which costs times. And the result is no one maintains them and they tend then you know to to uh to to uh to be outdated and and cause problems so this is uh the, you know the, yeah. the other side of the open source coin i would say mm -hmm. yeah and and uh to to back you off on that the 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 fact that we support microprofile is also a strategic move for us because it means we can be more or less like the the next uh the next generation offering for um uh oracle customers exactly. that want to transition out of uh, the traditional uh weblogic uh licenses right mm -hmm. so uh, not even that is like any any java e vendor uh, we can we can offer an alternative uh, a exactly. supported alternative right a commercially supported alternative to them uh on basically the same apis like if yeah. they were uh, a java e web um profile you know yeah. Uh, project-based, and they can probably migrate over to MicroProfile without much changes to it. Yeah, and so, so what I what I'm saying so with the Java SE Helidon, I don't think any of my clients would be interested in Helidon at all, uh, not mm. even proof of concept. In uh, with MicroProfile changes the game, I would say. Yeah, and 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 uh, if you just look at Helidon SE, then you would have um, we would be competing with Vertex, and Vertex itself is has its own community. So you could actually question like if Helidon was just SE, then why not choose Vertex over Helidon SE? Yeah. Right. And and Vertex the same. So I had uh, already uh, you know, discussion with um with the guy behind Vertex. Um I forgot his name. Uh Esco, Esco, um uh, Clement, right? Clement uh, Clement yes, yes, yes. Uh what's his last name pronounced uh, you know in the neutral French way? What was it? Uh, Clement? Es 
Escoffier, I think. Escoffier, exactly. So Escoffier, Escoffier. Yeah. Escoffier. So I don't uh, try to know to have the neutral accent, <laughs> not too much south or north from French. And uh, <laughs> and uh, we also had the chat, and I say, okay, at the end of the day, Vertex is like a more specialist tool, right? So um, and uh, and uh, there are cases where reactive shines, but you don't have to use a reactive all over the place. Which I'm, this is what I understand. But uh, just using reactive because it's funky, that this is what I don't understand at all. You know, the whole fashion-driven development is really uh, some kind of boring because it changes every two years, you know. Right. Um, and if you think about it, uh, in Helidon, it is almost an implementation detail. Yeah. So if you want to go reactive, you can, but then you're kind of, you're not on your own, but you are basically, you're using these reactive libraries and you're going to be in some kind of rat hole, whether you, you like it or not. Yeah. Uh, but with Helidon, we have a bunch of kind of APIs around that. So when you, let's say, you're writing a web server endpoint and you want to consume uh, the payload from post request, you know, as, I don't know, a JSON object or whatever, right? You don't even have in your code to see anything that's, say, reactive. It's like we have a wrapper API around these things. And in fact, it's actually a good news because we are we are thinking really hard about the transition over to Loom. Exactly. And and the obsolescence of um, Reactive with the arrival of Loom is, I mean, it's written on the wall, right? Yeah. So, um, so we also have heated discussion internally within the team whether or not uh, what we're going to do with Reactive. Yeah, I would say... And we're going to support Reactive, but it's not going to have such a prominent place as it, as it used to have. I think exactly. that's what's so I would say end up being... just to use Reactive to scale better is pointless because you could have Loom. And I would just use Reactive where you have Reactive use cases, where you have you know, a source of events with changes and you can just subscribe to these events and do something with it. This is beautiful. But you know, yeah. having HTTP server, which is Reactive, I don't get it. Having a Kafka, GMS, WebSockets, server-side events, which are Reactive, some a source of events where I can subscribe to this very natural and really nice programming model. Yeah, well, the, the use cases for Helidon SE are very specific. Is If you want something small and really fast in terms of requests per seconds, you should use SE over MP because we, we have much better numbers in terms of performance. Yeah, what 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 means much better? Uh, I think it's a factor of two almost in some cases. Yeah, but... Uh, like there is a, yeah, but there's what... a benchmark. If you know the Tech Empower benchmark, you can look at the numbers there and we have uh, numbers for both uh, flavors. The, the question is just, you no, know, is it fast enough? And I believe it is going to be fast enough for you know, most of the projects. Yeah, Helidon MP is, is basically on par with other microprofiles implementations, yeah, so it is fa it is fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. So if I will be uh, exactly, if I will build you know Netflix or API gateway or whatever, I would probably use SE or even less. So then I will if, yeah, probably create exactly. my own highly tuned stack. But my project, I if you hit your database in the backend, you know your web server doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the problem. You no, know, the secret sauce of our project. So I get often question you know, about scalability and the the, the set. Truth is that most of the project use uh, some database, one database, and they hope that if they start, you know, hundreds of microservices and, and everyone meets in the database, they solve the problem. But it, it gets worse because you get more contention in the database and you have logs in the database. So this is actually what usually happens, right? Yeah, unless you implement something crazy like CQRS, you're not going to be able to have much throughput. Yeah, and CQRS, uh, I mean, what it means is uh, that you have two channels to the backend and probably you will need two data sources which you replicate somehow, so you will lose properly consistency and you will end up implementing some Zagas and uh, twice as much use cases. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, you will ship, you know, a, 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 
nice monster. small monolith <laughs> <laughs> you don't have such problems right from 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 the begin with so um yeah. yeah but completely different story why i actually after three hours of discussion so <laughs> what i <laughs> wanted to talk with you actually is about about uh, uber is a german about a nice project is the cli yeah. so what i was delighted to to find that uh, the helidon comes with a command line interface Mm-hmm. And um, and um, first, what I saw is this is it looks like Go library, and I said, okay, uh, strange. This is a Java project, and they ship you know a native uh, library. And I asked Dimitri, and I say, yeah, it is actually written Java. It's like why not you also not don't, don't post you know a jar because uh, this will be more obvious. And this is actually uh, cross compiled from. Oh, this is the result of probably GraalVM, right? So it is this native mm-hmm. library, so you can it's called Helidon. And you can launch it and say Helidon in it, and it comes with configuration which pulls from my user folder, so I can pre pre initialize you know the output. And I actually wanted to create a a pull request because what I wanted to have is that it also remembers my choices regarding MP or SE. I always prefer MP, for instance, and also I think mm. to to store so some more choices. Uh, so what I would like to do is you know Helidon in it and pull eighty percent from my config. This would be nice. And I see. Because he asked me now, I think two or three questions are just too much, and I created lots of pox. But um, so, which which archetypes are you using? You're using the MP Quick Start or the MP Bear? MP Bear. So I, okay. So, so all what right. I use. Yeah. But I would like to store it in my configuration. This is what I wanted to mm-hmm. to, to check out the sources, and uh, because I think it should be easier to to extend. Yeah, you should hunt. you should file a a. A request for like a an issue on our GitHub yeah. tracker and yeah. request that feature. But the point is, uh, it works completely different. Uh, actually, uh, it is the inverse uh, strategy from from Quarkus. In Quarkus, you would create um, a, a, with a plug in the project, and in in Quarkus, uh, you are uh, downloading you know the the command line interface first, if you like, and then it will create your projects and it will ask you. Uh, would you like to be in dev mode or not? And then it starts the watcher, downloads everything in the background, and then it will reload your projects. And I really like, you know, the CLI experience actually. So this Heliton in it, it really worked well. And then I went to GitHub and I, t- I took a look uh, who creates that. And I saw uh, Romain Gricor. Uh, <laughs> and I said, okay, I, I remember the guy because uh, of Surly. And I took a look, you know, at the look, yeah, you work for Surly. And um, I didn't knew about your Glassfish and and Java E background, but I I remembered Surly somehow and you and and, and Alexis. Okay, interesting. And I wanted to talk with you about the command line interface. That's the entire story. And I think you are behind the command line interface. Was it your idea to create that? Uh, it wasn't specifically my idea, but I I I am a big uh, fan of the idea of having a CLI experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You would say like the shape of the CLI that you see is probably like very much influenced by my personal opinions. Okay. Uh, the people that worked on it, uh, I I worked on the CLI with another person, two other person, uh, Santiago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope I'm not gonna. Well, I'm not gonna say his family name because I'm, I might just say it wrong. And then another uh, Oracle employee called Brian. Brian at that. So. Um, the idea for the CLI, basically, it came from uh, kind of Dimitri, and it was just a simple request. Guys, we need a CLI. Dimitri is a nice guy. I think it's completely unpolitical, I, I guess. So I don't know him. <laughs> right. but, uh, yeah. so, so then we kind of scrambled, and then um, what I 
I used so I I wrote a bunch of JavaScript in the last few years. Uh, I did a headed on landing page, the website. I also did um, the headed on docs and a couple of other uh, Vue.js based projects. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Webpack and yeah. the JavaScript bundling tool. So Webpack has this kind of dev server that can watch for your changes and incrementally kind of rebuild your app. You should it take, take a funky. look at, at Snowpack if you're familiar with it and Rollup. This is the next generation. So okay. let's okay. say the the Webpack is more like, you know, the first Sun server and the uh, Rollup is more or less almost like the Glassfish V3 and the Snowpack is already headed on. Okay, I see. So this is like the progression. But uh, it's very right. easy to use. If you do the next project, take a look at Rollup or Snowpack because they are almost nothing to configure. Yeah. Because Webpack is a is a pain to configure. This is what uh, I wanted it's to very say. complicated it's a too. From from hell, you can do everything. Yeah. Even probably you know, back your pizza. But uh, but you know, just if you would like to create something for the web, forget it. And um, I do a lot for web with the same you know idea as the backend. I just use plain JavaScript web components and Snowpack or Rollup, and this works okay. perfectly. Right. And so my my. What I discovered when I was using these tools is they have like, uh, when you create a view, I think it's Vue.js version two projects, they have a CLI, it's called the Vue CLI. And the Vue CLI creates, it has basically the same experience. You can do Vue in it mm -hmm. and it, it creates a project. And that project is almost fully functional. It contains like the, the, the package.json, the, the git config file, a readme and, and all these things, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can run NPM run I think it was in the past dev, or now it's called serve, S-E-R-V-E. -E. Mm -hmm. And what it does is basically the same as Helidon dev. So to some degree, since I worked really a lot with this tool, and I like the fact that I didn't really have to have the fully featured, you know, JavaScript environment that knew how to do anything and everything. Instead, I just had to have like a basic code completion and I could just run this uh, process on the background in my terminal. And then you could just, you know, I open on my second monitor or I split the monitor into I open the, the browser. You make a code change, poof, your browser shows you exactly what you're working on. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of a developer experience, especially for a web framework, like a, a front-end framework, it's great. It's, it's, it's really great. It's powerful. And so uh, when thinking about the CLI, I was like, man, we need to replicate exactly that same experience where you don't, you download the binary once you install it. And it is what I like about all the, bi the, the Go binaries is, this is a jumping different topic, is the installation step. If you think about how do you install a Java CLI, well, you got to basically download some kind of zip file somehow and then put it somewhere yeah. and then put it in your path, right? So when you download like Q-Control for Kubernetes, you just download the binary, you, you, do, you, make exactly. a, you make it executable, you put it wherever you like and you use it. Yeah. It's like the installation experience, like there is none. <laughs> so I... I really like that. And, and basically, GraalVM, what, what it offers as a possibility now is, well, we have the goodness of Go and the greatness of Java as a, exactly. as a programming language that exactly. we're really familiar with. And you could argue whether GraalVM in a production web app you know, is a good choice or not, but for making a CLI, it's great. Yeah. And there's I, I no doubt about of, that. A lots of command line you know, uh, tools for, uh, for, for my own use with GraalVM. Yeah, I think this is where it's like undeniably like the best yeah. uh, choice for, for Java well, people. What right I now. still would do, I don't know whether you did it, you could also offer you had it on the jar where you can launch with Java minus jar, would also work, right? Yeah, so it's it's doable. We just uh, never did a distribution that we could upload like that. Uh, we actually, so there is like a, what's called the former Groovy package manager. There is a, like, um, okay. 
there is a tool that you can use to install things these days on the command line. And I think it's originated from the Groovy environment. SDK man? Yes. And so if we wanted to publish, I think the CLI as an SDK man, man package, I would rather not publish the native image binary, but more like a plain Java distribution. No, I, I would we just know, this, publish right? in addition this, this jar, had it on the jar CLI, just to, 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 to show that it's actually Java. Because uh, for me, I, I just look at that. It's like this is Go, and and this is somehow said that <laughs> this is Go. So you but would I, just want to see the jar and not even have a wrapper script on top of that. Yeah, I, just in addition to your no Go like experience, I would just offer just a jar. A Java dash jar, held on the jar, basically. Yeah. Okay. Why not? I mean, uh, yeah. because uh, you know it will run on Windows and everywhere. And it will be the choice because I was a little bit suspicious. You know what is it inside? Because um, it could be whatever, right? But if it's Java, it is a little bit more secure. At least I knew Helidon, so for me it was not a big problem. But it's always a little bit okay. What I'm downloading from the internet, right? It's an executable mm -hmm. thing. And I uh, know Mac asked me should I trust the thing? It's like yeah, I'm trusting, and, and then it worked. But with uh, Java minus Jar, I, I, I think that there are people who would just prefer the the Jar. Uh, and I just, you know, um, I, I enjoyed the your experience. I'm still running the native because uh, it is great. So I just put it to path and it works. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, point taken. I think we should probably uh, provide one more download. Mm -hmm. And I, it I, doesn't it doesn't cost us anything. So no, no, clearly, exactly. Just so that. just to show, okay, we have pure Java and with you no know, goodness of Graal, yeah. we can cross compile it to to native thing. And what uh, are you thinking about providing you know uh, client side extensions so you can uh, influence the template a little bit more? So yes, yes. So that's uh, that's in the in the loop. Uh, we we have a uh, a few features that we want to implement. And a pluggable uh, extension API to kind of like add more commands, right? That's what you're asking for. Is something that we might come up with uh, in order to support other use cases that we're not supporting. So if we were to support like maybe a little bit more of Kubernetes or Docker with the CLI, then we we might do this with extensions. Or, or I would in, in, would like to influence you know the code you are shipping with because uh, you are actually executing an archetype, and the question yes. would be, can I just this would yeah then I would just have to you know provide my own archetype right because you are actually not creating the source tree you are just calling the archetype right right and so the um, we are not using Maven archetype we kind of recreated. Um, Oh. A framework that's similar to Maven archetype, but that works with Maven archetypes. So our archetypes can be executed from Maven. So we have some kind of compatibility, mm -hmm. but uh, the templating framework is like homemade. This and the reason okay. for that, mm -hmm. the reason for that was that we needed that to be, a, we, we have certain features that we want to support that we wouldn't be able to support uh, with the plain Maven archetype framework. Yeah, you hit the wall pretty quickly. So I also experimented with the archetypes really hard you know, to deal with packages and with Maven archetype is really hard to do that. Right. You, yeah. Yeah, so what happens is we have basically empty metadata inside an archetype jar that mm -hmm. we do so that Maven sees that as an archetype mm -hmm. and it contains, so Maven archetype as a, as a hook, which is a groovy script that mm -hmm. you can provide to execute code. And we provide a Groovy script inside that's basically just going to uh, trigger our own archetype engine. And right. So what happens is when you run the Maven archetype with Maven, it generates an empty project mm -hmm. and then it runs our Groovy script that generates the project using our own framework. Okay. So, so this way, uh, 
you could still generate a project from your ID if your ID knows how to create a project from an archetype. Okay. And then the Maven command line still works, but on the other hand, we also can support the CLI as a as a first class citizen. The, I mean, the, the, it's really fast to generate projects with our stuff, right? So yeah, yeah. That's, no, no, no. Um, but it's actually a great idea because I, I I hit the limits with our Maven architects as well. So there are a few bugs even, and um or, or yeah, and uh with with your approach it's actually great because it 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 feels and looks like Maven archetype, but it's it built on your own stuff. So what I remember, and if you create a Maven archetype. At the end of the day, there's like a post invocation script that is kind of groovy. Yes. And and yes. then if you leave everything empty, then the groovy gets invoked. I just used this groovy script for logging, so I could now perform uh, additional information. This is what I used the, the groovy script for. But of course, you can you can call your own hook. So what you could do with your CLI, you could allow me, you know, to create a new menu. Um, uh, menu points. So there's one SE bear or whatever, and then uh, it would call the Maven archetype, which will call your own templating language. And I could actually use your templating language to create m some more classes or take your influence how, how the project looks like, right? This would be possible. Right. So, I mean, we lack, we have a big gap in the documentation, but what you could do today is you could provide your own catalog Mm -hmm. That so we have this notion of an archetype catalog and archetypes. So you could provide your own archetype catalog locally, and have your archetypes there, and then you, they would have, they would basically contain your choices. So you could make basically um, a set of archetypes that fits your your use cases and always have them uh, show up. But I I think your templating engine is nicer than the templating engine from Maven archetype, right? Yeah, except that we kind of we didn't want to reinvent the wheel too much okay. because we were uncertain where we were going. So think about it as we re-implemented archetype to solve the problems we were having. Okay. So we didn't go too far from okay. the current uh, framework. So so the the correct you know uh, approach would be to create my own archetype and just use your Helidon CLI to point to my own archetype to generate custom code, right? Yes, what you could do is you could actually exactly you 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 create your own catalog, you put it locally, and you configure you set the in the Helidon config, you you set the catalog and you make it point to your own catalog. Okay, so what remains Something could like be interesting features like like post build hooks. So after the project was reloaded, as you said, I could just you know call Docker to create a Docker image, or so you could you could specify more actions, right? So this would be the extension points of this. Right, UI. some kind of lifecycle hooks, yeah. yeah. So um, in in the future, we plan on supporting Docker because uh, right now, what the experience you have with Helidon Dev is basically you you run Helidon in it and you answer yes or no for the starting the development loop, mm -hmm. or you could later on like when you know when you reopen your terminal on that project, you just type Helidon Dev. Yeah. What that does is it monitors for changes and it's basically uh, rebuilding your app and restarting it whenever you have a change. Mm -hmm. um, what we so what want it does, to support it restarts the entire Helidon project. There is no tricks with bytecode replacement issues. Yeah, exactly. So some people were actually really, really strong on you guys need to do like uh, hot class reloading. No. And we think, no, no. Uh, this is, simplicity is better. Yeah. And um, and you can have a lot of weird things when you yeah, do exactly. like uh, it, it never worked well. Like and this, it, so. it is no, it, it this is enough. If every ten tenth reload you have some issues, then you don't trust this, the entire mechanism anymore. So I would say is, uh, I would stick with simplicity, simplicity as long as possible, and don't provide yes. any hot replacement tips because it's really too hard to do it right. Right. 
This is why exactly. the whole deployment of application servers in one point of time, I never trust that. So what I did, I had my own script, which killed the server and restart the server because one point of time, okay, does it really work? And I would like to see it. So yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So funny fact, funny fact, just uh, because you said JavaScript. So I was in a JavaScript workshop <laughs> with a JavaScript engineers, you know, to try to explain them. Uh, web components and uh, and stuff, and they watch me, you know, with my backend runtimes, and they ask me what we have in JavaScript. We have a system, you know, uh, stuff which you know watches the changes and reloads the runtime. You have something like this, and I thought about that. It was like two years ago. So I don't think so. And then and then then I thought about this actually pretty easy because in Java. SE seven, you have even watches, so you have watch events. Mm -hmm. We watch the changes, you know. In the so, okay, this is done. I only have you know to call Maven with Maven Embedder and then copy the file over to my servers. And what I create a project called What Watch and Deploy sh, and this was mm -hmm. like you know five Java classes. And this is like uh, it's not a CLI. I just you you you're actually doing the Java minus jar watch what dot jar, and it uh, searches for in documents folder for what RC. And there are now all the locations of the auto deploy folders, and it just re-executes Maven and copies the file. And this works actually surprisingly well. So this was very simple, no magic, and it worked really well. Now it's of course pointless because Helidon and and, and Corpus they don't have any deployment anymore. But um, yeah, so this was uh, also a similar experience to yours. So I got asked you now by JavaScript developers. I thought about that, and it was really was really was very easy to build with Java actually. Yeah. So we we optimized things a little bit where. We are running just a compilation and running your app as an exploded class path. Mm -hmm. So when you run Elid on dev, we don't really package the application. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be more careful because uh, Helidon is larger, right? So, and, and this, this is worse. My words were tiny, so it didn't matter. But you're right. In your case, uh, yeah, it is, of course, faster. Yeah. Right. So, we don't have to basically uh, copy all the, the, the libraries under target slash libs, right? We, mm -hmm. we create a class path straight up from the local Maven repository and the, and the target classes directory. Mm -hmm. um, and then, what we do is the first time you run it, we have what we call the prime build. Mm -hmm. Because we have to harvest like a little bit of information about your projects and so mm -hmm. on. So uh, the first time you run it, it's taking a little bit more time because we have to run a full build. But then every time you make a change, based on what the change is, uh, we are only going to process the resources or recompile the classes. Yeah. What you and should do the first time, just add some you know, status information because uh, um, it takes longer than usual. And I thought you are mm -hmm. downloading something from the internet the first time. Yes, I, I I agree that we we need some more logging because especially if your if your repository is is empty, yeah. your local repository, uh, it's gonna take a while and it's, especially based on your uh, network uh, internet connection, then you will not have any feedback from the terminal and that might be a little yeah, just uh, I think frustra frustrating. Down yeah. initial build downloading depths and yes, I think we do have an issue uh, to add that feature. Okay. Perfect. So what I want to say is that uh, regarding Docker and Kubernetes, it's um, I think Docker files are still a little bit cumbersome, especially for simple frameworks like Helidon, because all we all we care about essentially is you want to build a new layer that contains just your classes from your application. Yeah. And every time you rebuild, you want to rebuild that one layer, right? One copies. And yes, and the problem I have with that is when you do a Docker build, the whole environment is within Docker itself, right? Like the whole lo uh, local repositories in Docker, all the layers, all the way are in Docker. And so then you have this discrepancy between your local folder in your where your ID you know, runs off and then your Docker image. And these two things are kind of different. And sometimes when you want to kind of tinker or like see what's, what's happening, it's not that easy. So what I want to see is basically a tool like JIP, 
where you're doing offline kind of Docker daemon-less uh, image builds and add that on top of the Maven build in Helidon, in a Helidon project, and then have the CLI kind of play nice with this. Mm-hmm. So I'm mentioning JIP because it's the one exact uh, project that basically implements that and that's really popular. Mm-hmm. Though I think in the long term, we might end up re-implementing something like JIP because uh, I think if you look uh, closely enough, you, you're going to find you know things that you cannot do with JIP. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I want to see is basically a use case where you can incrementally support rebuilding the Docker image for your project as you are changing files and also kind of re- incrementally redeploying your app inside a, a Kubernetes cluster so that uh, you could basically work, let's say, with your Docker for desktop installation and Kubernetes straight up from the CLI. So you type Helidon dev and you have a Docker daemon running and your local cluster running and then everything is working off of Kubernetes. Yeah. That's something we have as an experiment um, that we want to, I mean, that I want to work on the long term that I think would be a, a good value because I think the problem with Kubernetes is you tend to work on your laptop and doing these things and you test, you know, locally and stuff. And then it's time to port your app to Kubernetes and you have to write all these YAML files and then it's complicated. And then sometimes you might even realize that you made the wrong decision before because now it's basically not working well with what you need to do in Kubernetes, right? Yeah. So if you were to generate a Helidon project and that from the start, you had like all the boilerplate generated for Kubernetes, and then you type Helidon dev without doing anything, and it just worked out of the box with your local cluster, I think that provides values to developers where they don't have to figure out this stuff. Yes. It just works. Yes and no. So th- my problem with such approaches is that um, if if something generates, you know, the YAML, it always doesn't look right. Yeah, I, I'm always, you know, able to delete something. And um, if I... So if you get that and you trust the tool, then it's okay. So, but I think uh, you cannot just blindly trust a tool to generate the files and then run it because in one point of time, you will have to understand the YAMLs if you go to production. You cannot just you know, trust for development is okay, but then you will have to understand the YAML in order to modify the YAML to go to production or integration. So I think you yeah, know, the I, challenge yeah. here is to create a very clean YAML. So you could say it cannot be even any cleaner. It's just you know, the minimal, minimalistic, beautiful YAML it's, it's, it's such a, uh, I mean, you can, nothing beautiful with YAML. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can say JSON, right? So, so this, this, this was Mission Impossible, what I said right now. But um, it's just minimalistic uh, text file, right? Uh, which ships to, and this is the challenge. Because I always, if I use such a tools, I was always like, what happens actually behind the scenes? And I took a look at the files, I go, come on, there's a lots of annotations, unused, and then why they generated that. And this is, looks like, that doesn't look right, right? This would be the challenge, I would say. Right. I think whenever you have a tool that um, generates boilerplates, um, you have that uh, the same concerns, right? Yeah. If you look at JHipster, I think it's it's it has the same things. Where the beauty is that you can generate almost like a fully functional application with JHipster, and it contains things all the way down to like internationaliz- internationalization and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see how they did it, but then. As you go and write your app, you might want to remove things or make it leaner or have to customize every piece of it. And the problem is you might not understand everything that's there. Yeah. Right. And um, I have a problem with it. I'm I, I really hard. If, if, if I am in project and something which I don't understand, or this is why I never use Scala, because if you, if you click on a library and I see, you know, all the cryptic signs, I say, okay, this is, uh, I close it again and move, move away from it. And uh, and Java is the beauty that you can actually understand a lot, right? So if you if you if you just click on string or string buffer, I mean this is like 
beautifully written. So you you understand it's like you know beginner's code in a good way. So you, you understand what's going on without any cryptic you know stuff. And uh, I'm almost you know I think if you if you have to rely on code generators to be productive, something is wrong with the framework. I would even argue because yeah uh, yeah. If you I don't know whether you have experience with Angular. This is another you know technology from hell. So I don't even know why they need all the stuff in the browser, dependency injection modules and all the stuff. And uh, and uh, and and they, they need code code generators from the command line to generate all the components. So it really reminds me. I don't know. Are you actually aware of the project called xdoclet? Xdoclet. Yes. Oh yeah, you mean the Java doc uh, yeah. plugin, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was used to generate a lots of boilerplate because back then it was necessary. Lots of XML to 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 to, to you know keep everything together. And the YAML mm -hmm. could go also in this direction, like you know proprietary diploma descriptors. You mean before the annotations were introduced in Java, people were doing annotation-based programming from Java doc, right? Yes. Yes. That's what xdoclet was used for. Yeah. And, yeah. and the and the and the you know uh, fashionable name was attribute-oriented programming. This was <laughs> it was not like you know generating crappy code from JavaDoc. It was attribute oriented. So that's what programming. AOP truly is. <laughs> yeah, attribute oriented programming. Yeah, aspect oriented programming. Right? Yeah, I know, I know. I'm, yeah, I'm that's another technology which uh, I always heard. You know, three use cases: logging, monitoring, and something else. And so, okay, this is already solved in application server. So give me something else and then no one talks about AOP anymore except if you implement your own runtime, right? Yeah, so your point is very valid. Um, in fact, I think uh, we are going to use your opinion later on because we're talking about implementing something like features in the CLI. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very careful with this because in my opinion, the boilerplate is something you use only when you start a new project. We should not kind of, if we have to like provide a tool that developers are supposed to use midway as they're working on a project just to generate something, I think there is a little bit of wrong in, you know, why we have to do this, right? What it, what it could do, actually, I'm just thinking about, um, because I did it recently with um, a YAML templates for Kubernetes, you could actually say, look, what I can give you, what we actually can give you is the name of the service, what else? Some, maybe, you know, the name of the Docker file because you can derive it from the POM or e even less. What you know from my project is my package name, the name, FD, and the Maven coordinates. I don't think it's any 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 other valuable information from from you can derive from the Java source code, and um, and maybe I can specify from command line, you know, my Docker secrets or whatever I have, or Docker, or or, or sorry, Kubernetes um, uh, URL, whatever, and then mm -hmm. you can ask me to provide a YAML template and replace, you know my placeholders with the stuff you know so this would be a and and if i if you don't provide the template from by me you could provide your own template a default template which could be replaced by my own clean template right this this could work right so you're asking for uh, if i if i were to rephrase what you said for some kind of uh templating feature that could uh inject and derive values out of the project like the simple ones, like yeah. my package name, my GAD, and I see. Just a, this yeah. is a spontaneous idea. So you would provide me the values for my template, and we could agree of of shell placeholder, something very simplistic. So you could say, what we know from your project, we can add, give you as a me. I am the developer, you are the provider. Because uh, you get from us, you know the artifact id group id something what the maven archetype is doing so then i can give you, you no know, i mean we have that implemented you know just be yeah 
because we have a, our own archetype engine. And so yeah. we could basically expose something like we have today as a, as a CLI command so that you could use this for, to generate your own files. That's what you're, you're asking for. Yeah, and, and then you can also ask, you know, whatever it is in the, your microprofile config properties, we can also provide you the entire microprofile config key value pairs. Then I could configure my own stuff. And then, then I think this could work, right? Because uh, then it is my clean template with your variables. Is yeah, that's an interesting idea. Would be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Just, just an yeah. idea. So it was spontaneous. Yeah, okay. I'm going to run that by our team and see what what, uh, what that does. That's a, that's a very interesting idea because what I cannot... So what this does, your idea is that it doesn't really bring any controversial idea that we have to kind of create something that is logically grouped as features and that, you know, we generate for the user. Because we have we had this discussion recently, and I think this is a little bit controversial. Because we have to kind of model some of the things that we have around our APIs as feature and expose them to the user, like I don't know, mm -hmm. uh, headed on add Docker file, you know, mm -hmm. for for instance. And so what you're saying is, well, no, maybe we don't care about doing this logical model. Instead, we just provide a tool for users to just deal with their own boilerplate. Yeah. And the boilerplate is not opinionated because it's theirs. So yeah, yeah. And you can provide your own empty templates for Docker or your opinionated templates, which can immediately replace because, you know, this is what could... Work. Right. With an override mechanism, so you could say, okay, use yeah. my version of the Docker file template. If there okay. is no, you know, there is no Docker file, you will create your own. If there is one, you will pick this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So so anyhow, like the, the, the things that we, we want to do on the CLI is basically long-term, find a way how to support in a good way, Docker and Kubernetes for the local environment. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it's probably something we're going to do before that, uh, support Gradle. I, I, I guess you're not probably a, a big Gradle user, but uh, it's it's something that people requested uh, yeah. quite quite a lot. And you, you have to we do have it to because you get always the question, you know, uh, this is like yeah. a, a funky question to ask, do you support Gradle? But uh, um, I th why not? You should, yeah, if you can support yeah. Gradle. And th I think the problem is we ha we are overall a Maven house. Like we we use Maven, we 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 are very proficient with it. We understand it very well. So for us, it's it's. I mean, there was no other choices. And and I guess we're very biased because we probably all have a, some kind of grudge against Gradle in one way or another. Uh, no, uh, having it, worked on WebLogic, I've seen probably the bad side of it, which I, I could say. But I can also recognize that on a small project. Especially like a project where you use Helidon as a as a as a framework, Gradle can really thrive and really be good at doing what it's doing. This like is what the incremental I don't get. Gradle's Because if you if you think about this, so um all my, my, my project are I mean, regardless of the size, if you just rely on microprofile on Java E or whatever, what you end up being if you are reasonable, you know, in best case one dependency. And this is basically mm -hmm. it. So I never had to modify the Maven project. I actually don't care about Maven at all. And uh, if I would use Gradle, it would be similar. So I don't have, you know, the, 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 there's not an XML dependency. It is one liner. And I mean, Gradle is more interesting in more complex builds like Androids where you can actually, you have to program inside the Gradle file. To, it's like a programming language. So Gradle mm -hmm. is a mix between Ant and Maven. And I never had to use the scripting capabilities of my project. So I think Gradle is great, but in microprofile Jakarta environment where you have, you know, set of APIs is is less 
useful than in it has great incremental support that maven will never have and so that's why i think on okay. smaller projects okay. gradle can really be really good because it has something that gradle doesn't have and the, the, the explanation is very simple is on, on maven maven does not know what the plugin does Mm -hmm. Maven doesn't know if a plugin takes a certain set of files as input and produces these files as output, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if you've seen Gradle, Gradle has every task and then task has input and outputs. Mm -hmm. So at core, Gradle knows what files a task is bound to, right? And then it's building a graph. And when it sees that files have changed, it knows exactly what things to rebuild. Mm -hmm. Right, and Maven will never will never get that just by design because it doesn't yeah. have this this. But in, you know, remember in Java in Jakarta, a project was the war, which was tiny, so we always build everything. And if, if you it, have to repackage, yes, doesn't yeah. doesn't really matter. But if you have, I understand, in Helidon or Quarkus uh, uh, context, it could be different because you could only just build with which really different different context. So this could make sense, I would say. Right. It's all about incrementally rebuilding and then starting the app from the class path. And that's, I think, something that Gradle can do really well. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the big milestones we have for the CLI is to support Gradle. Okay. Oh, and by the way, you're talking about Windows. Uh, I did a lot of work in uh, the last two months to support Windows. So we'll have uh, native GraalVM Windows binaries available on the next version of the CLI. Nice. And of course, uh, a pure Java version as well. The <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Uh, with a special logo that says "approved by Edambian." Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Bian is like you know the the neutral accent always used, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Adam Bian. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. So, Seen on Erax.tv. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where people can find you? So on the internet. So you have you know your Twitter handle and the uh, Helidon pointer, you know to uh, head it on CLI and... Uh... Right. Um, and I think that's pretty much it in terms of public accounts. Um, they can find me on Slack in the Helidon uh, Slack channel. Yeah. Let's see. Um, they could also talk to me on uh, the Eclipse Slack channel. I think I'm also on that one, even though nobody uses it. Okay. It's very interesting. Like, I mean, there is literally nobody in these channels. So interesting. So you're the, the, the lonely Eclipse channel maintainer. No, 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 no. I'm just there, but I've never really said anything. It's just there is not much activity on I, these I channels. I thought, you know, you will have to, 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 to build your bot from IRC back then, you know, to become the admin or claim <laughs> the stuff or whatever. <laughs> no, but to some degree, I'm very pleased with Slack because I see Slack as the new IRC. Like yeah. I, the fact that it's organized with channels and, you know, private conversations and stuff. Yeah, it it looks like, like IRC. Yeah. And I, I, I really like that. Um, at some point, I tried to talk our management into using um, a free node and, you know, having like, because in, in Glassfish, we used to have an IRC server, like a channel mm -hmm. where people, uh, engineers would, would answer. But I think like it was basically up to individuals, whether or not they wanted to be on there. Like we didn't have any duty to be present on IRC and, and, and answer questions. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very pleasing to see that because I, I we are much closer to the community and when people have questions we can sometimes answer them like twenty seconds after they ask a question, so I, I, I that's a great feeling you know it's like we we may have lack of documentation in headed on some places but uh, if you if you have a question and you ask you know on Slack we might be able to get you an answer very very quickly yeah reactive reactive Slack yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay thank you it was a uh... I really enjoyed, you know, to talk with you about all the history, actually, uh, common history. Mm -hmm. Have we actually met 
at one point of time at conference. You remember yes, that? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, we've met, uh, I think, twice. And uh, at the Glassfish party in the Thirsty Bear, uh, probably okay. once. Okay. And then I was, I think, last time I was doing a Helidon booth with my manager, Jody Paul. Okay. And you probably passed by and said hi. Okay. Uh, you, you remember Ed Bratt, right? Yes. Okay. So Ed Bratt is uh, is my uh, plus two manager. So it's the manager of my manager. Now? Yes, currently, yes. Yeah, uh, greetings to him. So, <laughs> yes. So uh, whenever you've seen Ed on conferences, I was probably not very far, you know, uh, around. Okay. I think the first time, what was this? Probably like at the Glassfish party for the um, Java 1 right after Java E7. Okay. So it was always the Thirsty Beer Party. It was run like Glassfish and joined. Yeah, that's the community event where we get to meet, you know, all the the okay. contributors and the people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So um, I I just remember you from you know the early days and Twitter, but I don't remember you as uh, from the parties. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah. I think once you tried to contribute a, a set of samples to Glassfish, and okay. uh, but that didn't fly. That didn't fly very far, and so we had a very brief interaction. Okay, um, so you didn't like my examples, you know, I found out after 10 years, you know. No, no, I think it's just like probably, uh, I don't know what happened. Like, there were probably other discussions between you and some other people at Oracle, and maybe you just didn't want to contribute your examples afterwards. I don't know what okay, happened. Okay, I have no, no uh, idea. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I was I was requested to kind of uh, work with you on the samples, and then that never took off. Okay. That's what so I remember. It, it was my fault. Sorry for that, but, you know, crazy times. I always was <laughs> I overloaded so. for work. <laughs> Now I yeah. try to contribute something to CLI one point of time, you know. Right. So I I, I need to uh, remember the ideas that uh, you expressed today. So I'm so one idea is what I really would like to have. Either I would implement it by yourself, uh, by myself, if I if I would try, is to, you know that it remembers more stuff. So I would like to have you know the uh, that it remembers my MP choice and bear mm -hmm. choice. This is what I would like to be remembered. Now I have to you know to 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 to. There's no way to configure this right now. Okay. So yeah, okay. We call that the user flow, the, um, the set of questions that you're asked. So yeah. basically, the uh, user say, flow has to be completely configurable. Then I'm happy. Right. You want to be able to kind of uh, dictate the user flow, the answers yeah. for the user flow. Okay. Like you know npm. So helidon init minus yes go. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and then if I okay. uh, know because I I would do my artifact ID is in one place. The name doesn't matter in pom. So I could just you know, change the artifact ID in the IDE. This is one place and I can st start hacking, for instance. Okay. Okay. Ja and just, you also know. want uh, a Java, a plain Java distribution. Yeah, the plain Java just for marketing reasons. Because I think we should promote more that Java is able to run to to do is perfectly suitable for CLI. CLIs and right. uh, and why not? You know, because some people wouldn't trust you know the native image, and I can even imagine it is not possible to run it uh, on on a, on on a virus scanned environment on Windows. I can really imagine it in some environments. And I was um, and make you also have to say I trust this. So uh, right, we, so we because we are not signing the binaries yet. Uh, exactly. Something that we have to do. Yeah. yeah. So and this would be just just an well, why not? You can just offer that. You know, I mean, as an, on top of that, why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. It was nice to chat with you. I would like to reinvite you back in next year. And yeah. Okay. So and uh, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, likewise. So thank you. And uh, have a nice okay. day in California. Okay. Thank you. Have a good night.